This is hell. Coming for you from Second Story Studios. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, coming to you from. Yep, I'm coming for you, listeners. Watch out because this is hell. At Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, I'm Will Ippen. It is August 8th, which is a Tuesday, 2023. I'm filling in again for Chuck Mertz, who is away on vacation. He returns on Monday, August 14th. In the meantime, you're still stuck with me for a little bit. I'll be your guide through hell this week. This week continues our deep dive into our archive of interviews with prolific historian and listener favorite Gerald Horn, recorded between 2018 and 2023. Horn is a pretty big deal in the discipline of history, has a command of a range of subjects and the ways they intersect with race and racism, ranging from diplomatic history to labor history. Uh, structures of life like labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and even war. He's also written a lot about the film industry. If you want to hear more about him, listen back to our earlier episodes uh, in this series. Today's interview returns to the long reach of America's so-called peculiar institution, that is, racialized chattel slavery, As seen through the history of the Slaveholders Republic in Texas and its subsequent history in his 2022 book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Coming up after the interview, I will reveal the next batch of your answers to this week's question from hell, which asks, what do you dislike most about yourself? What do you dislike most about yourself. Before all that, however, we'll hear a hand-picked worst of Rotten History from Rinaldo Migaldi, whose Rotten History segments remind us that this has indeed been hell for quite some time. Without further delay, then, let's turn to our July 25th, 2022 conversation with Gerald Horn. I will catch you after. This is hell. You may be missing a huge part of why fascism has always had an influence on the United States without knowing the history of Texas, both as a republic and then a later state, here to help us have a better understanding of both Texas and U.S. fascism returning to This is Hell. As historian Gerald Horn, author of The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Gerald, welcome back to This is Hell. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great having you on the show. I cannot tell you how much our listeners appreciate you being on the show. And uh, last year, the last time we had you on, we were talking about your book on the economy of boxing. And our producer at the time uh, was a boxer himself. He really enjoyed your book, and I gave him a copy. So thank you again for a completely different topic that you would normally be writing about. But that was that's really a fantastic book. And during the show, uh, our show I was at this weekend, so many people were asking about you, and especially that book. I was really surprised. 
surprised at how many people really enjoyed that book. So thank you again for being a guest on our show so many times. My pleasure. So you write, in 1859, Texas was a bleeding sore, or so thought Robert Neighbors, a so-called Indian agent, toiling on Washington's behalf. There was a clique led by John Baylor, soon to bathe in infamy during the forthcoming Civil War for demanding extermination of indigenous, who uh, sought to accelerate the deadly process. This clique formed an organization or an organized conspiracy against the Indian policy of the federal government, which emphasized a reserve or reservation in the Lone Star State. No, insisted these opponents, indigenous should be simply liquidated. To demonstrate their utter seriousness and in anticipation of the Civil War, they launched frequent attacks on the United States military. Bloodthirstiness, which, said neighbors, exceeds all the brutality attributed to the wild Comanches, the ultimate target. So, Gerald, how open and explicit was this call for indigenous by whites in uh, for this, uh, you know, this indigenous genocide by whites in Texas? How open and public was this? Was this something that was a a common narrative at the time? Absolutely, it was. (laughs) They didn't uh, make any bones about their bloodthirstiness. And in fact, uh, you can track my footnotes, which will bring you to original sources. For example, there was a newspaper published in Texas called, quote, the white man, unquote. I found copies of it at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, about 60 miles west of Boston. So you may want to contact them and get uh, copies of those articles. But it reveals a basic fissure, a basic split in the settler class. On the one hand, you had settlers such as Robert Neighbors and the US federal government who thought that Indians should be placed on reservations. And ultimately that was the policy that prevailed, but it only prevailed after the settlers on the other side of the ledger who wanted uh, liquidation, extermination had done their handiwork. And I would also suggest that this was one of the many reasons for the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War in 1861. Uh, That is to say that it was not only a war about slavery, which I think is now the prevailing opinion, although we know that there's pushback against that idea in classrooms, not least in Texas, but another reason for the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War was that many settlers, not least in Texas, felt that Washington, the federal government, was not up to snuff when it came to taking the land of the Native Americans. And they thought that a state like Texas would be better off either A, in a new country, the so-called Confederate States of America, or B, resuming its independence, which was the case from its breakaway from Mexico in 1836 up until it joining the Union in 1845, or C, there was this other influential body of thought in in Texas, which felt that since the indigenous population oftentimes used Mexico as a rear base by which Texas could be attacked, that Texas should swallow all of Mexico, not just Texas, not just California, which happened 1846 to 1848, 
but should swallow all of Mexico, all of Central America, uh, oust the Spanish from slave-owning Cuba, uh, go all the way to the northern coast of South America. This, this group was called the Knights of the Golden Circle, uh, which was very influential among settlers in Texas. And uh, they did not prevail, fortunately. Those who prevailed were those who thought that Texas would be better off joining the Confederate States of America. But alas, as we all know, the Confederate States of America was defeated in the US Civil War in 1865. And the Texas lost their lost their most valuable investment. Speaking of the bodies of enslaved Africans is one of the largest uncompensated seizures of private property in the history of the world billions of dollars in slave property liquidated without compensation. And that helps to explain why the Texas former enslavers were so furious, why they helped to found one of the more formidable chapters of the terrorist Ku Klux Klan, why lynching of the formerly enslaved was so murderous uh, in the state of Texas and why one of the most rigid forms of Jim Crow or U.S. apartheid was established post-1865 in the state of Texas. You mentioned uh, Texas's uh, plans for a kind of imperialism where they would uh, take over uh, Mexico. How much did those kind of, that kind of imperial ambitions reflect the imperial ambitions of the United States? A lot of people don't view the United States as being an imperial country until, imperial nation until 1898, but it's arguable that uh, the United States, even before it was the United States, was a very imperial nation or uh, federation or whatever you want to call it at the time. So how much does that imperialism of Texas reflect the imperialism of the greater United States at that time? How much did Texas, even when it was a republic, still reflect what the United States was at that time? Well, I think that if you see indigenous nations as legitimate political bodies, you could make an argument clearly that from its inception, the United States itself, by overthrowing these indigenous polities, was embarking upon an imperialist path that reaches a crescendo in the 1890s with the overthrow of the independent state that was Hawaii, which then becomes the 50th and presumed final state of the United States in 1959, with the ouster of the tottering Spanish empire from the Philippines in the 1890s and from Cuba and Puerto Rico in the 1890s. So the argument that also could be made is that when Texas joined the United States, it added jet fuel to this imperial project because after Texas joins the United States in 1845, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that the United States then wages a war against Mexico, seizing not only California, but a good deal of what is now the US Southwest, California now being the most populous state in the United States of America, by some measures, the fifth largest economy on planet Earth. And so Texas was at the vanguard of uh, that particular war. And you should realize that 
another impetus for the U.S. Civil War, in addition to the perceived weakness of Washington concerning the ouster of the indigenous, was Texas was also dissatisfied with Washington's policy towards Mexico because before slavery was abolished, Texas had a problem unique to slave-owning states. If you look at Florida, there is water separating Bahamas from Florida. That complicates the ability of the enslaved uh, to reach what was free soil beginning with the 1830s with British, the British abolishing slavery in their colony that was Bahamas. Or if you look at Bermuda due east of the Carolinas, also British controlled territory, the enslaved property had difficulty in swimming to the Bermuda. But Mexico was different. You could stroll from Texas into Mexico. It's estimated that thousands and thousands and thousands of enslaved Africans did so. A capital loss on the part of Texas enslavers that they considered to be catastrophic. They felt that Washington was laggard in terms of putting pressure on Mexico to return this enslaved property. Keep in mind that Mexico had abolished slavery circa 1829 under a president of African descent, speaking of Vicente Guerrero. And that abolitionist decree was the impetus for slave owners such as Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston to revolt against Mexican rule in Tejas or Texas and establishing the Republic of Texas, an independent country, and then affixing their names to two key cities, Austin, Texas, and Houston, Texas, from where I'm now speaking. And it was the feeling in Texas that Washington should have uh, exemplified or should have executed a more muscular policy towards Mexico when it came to the question of returning enslaved property. And since they felt that Washington was not up to the task, they decided to bolt from Washington and throw in their lot with the so-called Confederate States of America. But as noted, they wound up losing that most valuable of investments, enslaved Africans. You were mentioning a little bit ago about uh, the kind of history that is taught in Texas classrooms when it relates to the Civil War. And when you're writing about uh, Texas proclaiming genocide against the indigenous and against African-Americans, you write that even a mainstream Texas historian felt compelled to acknowledge that Washington never formally adopted the policy of massacre authorized by Texas, where it was permissible to kill all males 12 years and older by the 1850s, and where the vaunted Texas Rangers were little more than death squads of a type that came to characterize U.S. foreign policy by the mid-20th century. The Texas Rangers were the death squad, yet there's a baseball team named after them. (laughs) So how aware is the public in Texas of the Rangers death squad past? Is this... this is the anti-critical race theory, the completely misleadingly named campaign, but is the anti-critical race theory campaign about not teaching accurate Texas history in Texas schools? Well, excuse me for for twisting my tongue, but I was just rushing to say 
Absolutely, clearly. In fact, just a few weeks ago, there was a debate at in educational policy circles in Texas as to whether or not to call the African slave trade the process of involuntary relocation, a euphemism by definition. And there have been previous debates about whether or not talking about slavery is much too difficult for little Johnny and little Jennifer to absorb. And that of course not only led to this rather hysterical and demagogic campaign against so-called critical race theory, which many of the legislators and policymakers do not know how to define, but as well, it led to a real backlash against the New York Times 1619 project uh, which you may recall came out in 2019, uh, spearheaded by now university professor Nicole Hannah-Jones, which said that the founding era or the founding of US democracy should be traced back to the arrival of black people, not necessarily to 1776 because in actually uh, playing upon some themes that are in my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, uh, she and the Times crew were arguing that 1776 uh, basically was a revolt against incipient abolitionism in London and also against the idea as reflected in the Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763 that London was expressing displeasure at continuing to fight Native Americans seizing their land and turning it over to real estate speculators like real estate speculator number one, George Washington. And so these are very difficult ideas for many in Texas, not only Texas, but many across the nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific to comprehend or absorb. And they are not interested necessarily in, in having a discussion or debate about these issues, they're interested in shutting down discussion or, or debate. And that leads to the subtitle of my book, The Roots of U.S. Fascism. And you point out that with the slaveholders land grab in Texas, uh, re reflexively detractors thought this should be countervailed by snatching Canada, the prospect of which only propelled further antagonism between London and Washington. Edward Everett Hale in 1845 posed the query that is yet to be answered def or definitively, how to concert conquer Texas before Texas conquers us. So throughout its history, even leading up to today, has the goal of Texas's political leaders been to some extent the conquering of the United States to make all of the U.S. more like, if not dominated by uh, Texas? Because that's a frightening consideration when we think of Texas politics, policies, and its leadership today. It certainly is. And as a resident of Texas, I would not wish Texas upon any state, least of all uh, Illinois, least of all California, least of all New York State. But keep in mind that when Texas comes into existence as an independent state in 1836, the idea of the leaders of that republic was to challenge the United States of America, particularly to challenge the United States of America in concert with foreign powers, particularly France, which was a kind of mentor of independent Texas. Texas had the idea that it should be in the vanguard 
of further denuding Mexico by winning the rush to the Pacific, beating the United States and seizing California, which would then be a beachhead in terms of independent Texas, then strengthening itself against the United States of America and then extending its remit into the Pacific by taking Hawaii before the United States does in the 1890s and then making its way to the uh, dreamily lucrative market that was China and that is China and that was and is India. So what happens of course is that Texas could not stand the pressure from worldwide abolitionism. Not only abolitionism in Mexico and to repeat Texas had a unique problem in having, having, a, uh, having an abolitionist nation on their doorstep, speaking of Mexico. Florida did not have this issue, nor did Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, the Carolinas, Virginia, et cetera. Not only an abolitionist nation, but an abolitionist nation whose closest comrade perhaps was revolutionary Haiti. Revolutionary Haiti, you may recall, 1791 to 1804 with the Haitian Revolution, a successful revolt of the enslaved, a successful revolt of unpaid workers, overthrows slavery, sets up an independent nation that then allies with abolitionists in London. And that combination finds friendship with Mexico. That is one of the reasons why Texas crawled into the Union in 1845 because it could not withstand the pressure from worldwide abolitionists, particularly abolitionists London. However, just as a footnote, uh, keep in mind that when Congress voted to accept Texas as a state, there probably should have been a vote of a supermajority, but it was only a simple majority. And that may become relevant as soon as next year because at the Republican Party convention in Houston just a few days ago, the party voted to put a referendum before the voters of Texas for Texas to secede once again, uh, setting up an independent country. Now I know there are probably those in your audience will say, I hope they win, good riddance to bad rubbish, but not so fast. Number one, I think that Texas would then reclaim its longtime ambition of challenging the United States. It probably would forge an alliance with reactionaries in the hemisphere. Probably its first embassy would be opened in Paraguay. And if Bolsonaro, the Trump of the tropics wins in the Brazilian elections, the second embassy would be opened there after October, 2022, when you have the Brazilian elections. And then speaking personally, Texas has the largest black population in the United States of America because of its energetic uh, ambitions with regard to enslaving Africans. And as a black person living in Texas, with Texas perhaps also being on the cusp of fascism, I shudder to think of what would befall the black population of Texas if Texas becomes independent and like an oil spill or a virus, I don't think you would be able to keep that from spreading to the so-called lower 48, that is to say, as far as Illinois, New York, or California.
You mentioned that Texas has the largest African-American population of any state in the United States. But still, that proportion of African-Americans in Texas only constitutes a little under 12 percent of the overall population. Is that enough to influence what you call Texas's evolution or, by extension, the evolution of the United States as a whole? Well, if you mean by that, if the black population by itself (laughs) could forestall uh, Texas becoming more muscular, in this reactionary politics up to and including flat fascism? The answer is no. The black population, uh, the black population was not able by itself to overthrow uh, slavery in Texas. It needed the help of the U.S. military, not to mention diplomatic assistance from Haiti and Britain. Uh, it was the black population was not sufficient to overthrow U.S. Jim Crow in the 20th century, that is to say U.S. apartheid. It needed the help of people outside of Texas and outside of the United States as well. And so that, that's one of my worries right now because uh, since the erosion of Jim Crow, beginning with the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954, you've seen the black leadership uh, have oftentimes broken their ties with forces in the international community which has been our saving grace in recent centuries. And it makes me quite nervous and anxious about what is to come in the 21st century. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn, who returns to our program to talk about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. You write that ultimately capital flight in the form of enslaved Africans scurried to Mexico in the thousands and says, Scholar James David Nichols, quote, in a very real sense, African-American runaways from slavery began driving Mexico and Anglo-Texans toward a conflict. And you add Texas and Dixie versus a Washington thought to be suspect, too. In some ways, the U.S. victorious war of aggression over Mexico is a catastrophic success for Washington, reanimating the sectional divide over slavery in the territories, especially in California, where Texans wielded early influence, leading to the unsatisfying compromise of 1850, a capitulation to enslavers, in essence, which further strained sectionalism to the point of rupture about a decade later. So to you, what explains this capitulation? And did the U.S., uh, did it even have a choice? Because you also add that propelling this cycle of violence was not only the racism that generated land grabs and the desire for enslaved labor, It was also the lack of confidence in the U.S. itself, as exemplified by the flight beyond then-U.S. borders by the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, the anti-Republican animus in Canada, backed by their uh, potent London allies, slave revolts, the continuing uprisings of Comanches and their allies. So did U.S. capitulation with slavers and slave states reflect the lack of faith in the stability or sustainability of the United States? Is that why the U.S. capitulated to Texans' slavers? Well, keep in mind that slavery was not just an issue of Dixie. Uh, That is to say, you had uh, slave ships, uh, ships to transport the enslaved uh, from uh, Africa to North America that oftentimes were built in Maine or built in Maryland. You had uh, investments in cotton, which was a major commodity in Texas. Those investments uh, sprung oftentimes from New York City. And that helps to explain why during the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, uh, Dixie had quite a stronghold in New York City, of all places. That helps to explain 
the uh, so-called anti-draft riots, which was an anti-Black pogrom in Manhattan, circa 1863, oftentimes spearheaded, I'm afraid to say, by uh, Irish Americans who felt that they would be conscripted to join the Union Army in order to fight to free Black people. Uh, that's something they wanted no part of. In fact, uh, you can still find an excerpt from the movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Gangs of New York. You can find it gratis online that is a graphic depiction of that pogrom against uh, Black people in uh, lower Manhattan. So Washington was not as strong as it might have appeared to be. And then there was quite a bit of sympathy uh, outside of Texas to the quote problem, unquote, that Texans faced in confronting the Comanches because the Comanches were probably the most militant and fearsome fighting force of the indigenous population, uh, perhaps surpassing the metal of the Lakota or the Sioux uh, due north in the Dakotas. And they were also accompanied in that category by the Apaches uh, who were on the Western border of Texas bleeding into New Mexico. And oftentimes these indigenous were joined by a unique indigenous force, um, that is to say the Caddo, C-A-D-D-O, who had a, an interlocking directorate uh, with black people. And all of these indigenous groupings oftentimes found sanctuary uh, south of the border in Mexico, which they could then once again, stroll across the border to attack the settlers and stroll back to sanctuary in New Mexico. And that issue, there were many in the United States who were sympathetic with the settlers with regard to confronting that issue. And then you mentioned in, in passing uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Now, given the fact that the Mormons, as we call them today, are considered a bulwark of conservatism and conservative values in the GOP and the Republican Party in particular, it may come as a surprise to many in your audience that that was not the case in the 1850s, particularly 1857, when there was a virtual war uh, between the Church of Latter-day Saints and the US government. Now this has impact because with the US military of fighting the Church of Latter-day Saints in Utah, Northwest of Texas, that was that, that meant fewer U.S. troops uh, who could assist the Texas settlers in terms of combating the Native Americans uh, and rebellious Africans. And so in that context, as your quotation suggested, the war against Mexico, 1846 to 1848, with the United States walking away with California and Arizona and New Mexico and a good deal of, of the U.S. Southwest, was a catastrophic success because what that meant was that the folks in the slave owning territory said, aha, uh, this is more room to expand slavery. And you had folks ultimately represented by US President Abraham Lincoln, who at least in the early stages were not necessarily opposed to slavery, but they were opposed to the expansion of slavery and the enslavers, perhaps understandably, because of the aforementioned factors, they overestimated their strength within the US Union. They overestimated the sympathy 
that they would enjoy within the U.S. Union, and they decided to go for it all and have a rebellion to not only perpetuate slavery forevermore, but overthrow the Lincoln government <laughs> in uh, 1861, 1865. And of course, they failed, wound up losing all, all meaning their most valuable property, enslaved Africans, which then, which then uh, pitched them in, into this, uh, this morass of terrorism as embodied in the Ku Klux Klan as they sought to exact revenge against their former property. Because as noted, the seizure of property, that is to say the liquidation of the financial interests in Africans was the largest uncompensated expropriation of private property one of the largest in world history, certainly the, the, one of the largest uh, in the history of North America. And it led to this terrorism and ultimately led to this unsustainable system of Jim Crow, whereby the enslavers sought to wall off the black population from the rest of the United States. That is to say, if there was a black witness in court, you had to swear in on a different Bible. If your pet died, they had to be buried in a segregated cemetery. In some factories, if there were black workers there, you had to look, you couldn't look out of the same window as those who were non-black. And that system was ultimately not only ludicrous, but unsustainable and ultimately fell victim uh, in the 1950s to forces of modernization. You also point out that as Jeff- Jefferson Davis struggled to reach Texas, the Confederate president struggled to reach Texas in 1865 for the rebels' last stand in conjunction with French-backed Mexico, Major General Gordon Granger approached Galveston, Texas with a Union force thought to be comprised of upwards of 75% Negro troops. The composition of this force made sense not only because, as the Spanish had discovered decades earlier, these troops were more determined than most to fight, a quality that was desperately required in light of the depth of the challenge. But as well, they were ideal to vouchsafe the order issued on June 19th, reiterating the legality of abolition or what became to be known as Juneteenth. For Davis and his fellow desperados, they thought that they could rally the erstwhile lost cause from their new residence in Mexico, then retake Texas and the Southwest. And as one student bluntly put it, they could launch raids and continue to kill Yankees, Jefferson Davis's loose plan when he fled, or alternatively akin to Texas, uh, Texan slaveholder Frank McMullen, one could flee all the way to Brazil and form new Texas in a slaveholding empire that could challenge Washington diplomatically, perhaps even militarily. If the Union forces had failed on Juneteenth, would the Civil War then have continued? Was the war not over at the signing of the Treaty of Appomattox, but at the Juneteenth battle in Galveston? Well, I would say that Appomattox, April 1865 in Virginia, when General Robert E. Lee turns over his sword to the Union military, that many in Texas in particular saw that at most as a pause before reloading. June 19th, 1865, when General Granger shows up in Galveston, Texas, that uh, they also saw that as a pause before reloading, because as your comments suggested, the idea was that since France, one of Texas's closest comrades, had 
seized on United States preoccupation with civil war in the 1860s to take over Mexico. That's the origins of the Mexican-American holiday of today, Cinco de Mayo, which marks a significant victory of Mexican forces over the French occupiers circa 1862. And so the idea was that not only would Texas enslavers flee into French-occupied Mexico with their valuable property in, in tow, the Mexican puppet emperor Maximilian would reverse the abolitionist decree of a few decades earlier that had led to Texas secession from Mexico in 1836 under Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston et al. And that uh, Mexico could then become a rear base by which not only could slavery continue, but then the war could continue <laughs> against the US government uh, with the backing of France. But what happens is that they did not necessarily get buy-in from the Mexican population with regard to the scheme. And by June 19, 1867, the Mexican population had risen up and overthrown the Maximilian French puppet dictatorship. And June 19, 1867, I argue, brings us closer to real abolition, because keep in mind that even after June 19th, 1867, there were scattered cases of enslavement of Africans continuing. Indeed, even today in 2022, uh, slavery to a lesser degree exists. The United States is oftentimes uh, passes under the euphemism of quote, wage theft, unquote, uh, whereby uh, people work and don't get paid. and You've seen stories, I'm sure, about these sweatshops in Southern California, mostly featuring uh, Asian Latino workers, where the workers are not only not paid, but oftentimes not allowed to leave the premises, which is this kind of replica of the plantations that produce slavery and sugar and other commodities. Now they're producing uh, clothes, for example, fast fashion as it's oftentimes called in the United States today. So this question of Texas and the question that you mentioned a moment or two ago, whether or not uh, the United States could conquer Texas or Texas could conquer the United States, it's still a live and open question as represented not only by this demagogy about critical race theory, about Texas's demagogy concerning open carry of weapons and this rather uh, ridiculous interpretation of the Second Amendment of the US Constitution with regard to circumscribing of women, women's reproductive freedom where Texas has been in, in the vanguard even before the, the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi. So uh, I would urge and encourage your audience to pay careful and close attention to Texas because I'm afraid to say where Texas is right now may be where the rest of the country is headed. That's the most frightening part of, uh, I shouldn't say that, that is one of the many frightening things that you bring up in your book. You write that of, of the post-Civil War era, what seemed to be a rosy dawn of freedom was swiftly drowned in death as Texas solidified its already extant role as the continental epicenter 
of counter-revolution. Between 1865 and 1868, as the reborn nation was struggling to solidify a new birth of freedom, Texas led the nation in total number of homicides. Historian Fawn Brody, in her study of abolitionist hero Thaddeus Stevens, concluded morosely that at that point, Texas Negroes were were worse off in that state than any other. Did life become worse for African Americans in Texas after slavery was abolished, after the war, the Civil War was over and slavery was eventually abolished and the war finally ended on Juneteenth? Well, I can't say that Black people were worse off post-1865, but I can say that it was a different kind of hell. In fact, you may be familiar with this aphorism coming out of Texas post-1865, where a union, union general was quoted for the proposition that if he owned hell in Texas, he'd live in hell and rent out Texas. Now, was Texas worse than hell? Well, certainly it was a living hell uh, for the indigenous population and the black population. And sadly enough, I'm afraid to say that the black population would have benefited from better leadership because what happens during this inglorious period following the US Civil War is that you have many black soldiers who were felt indebted to the United States government. And so they become the spearhead in wars against Native Americans, the Buffalo Soldiers, oftentimes uh, sung by Bob Marley of Jamaica and those who followed him. And they were really, I I hesitate to call it a death squad, but certainly the kind of roughhouse tactics that they used against Native Americans is one of the most despicable chapters in, in, in Black history. And what's even worse is that it does not do them any favors. What I mean is, at the same time that the Buffalo soldiers were routing the indigenous population in West Texas, the black population, which is heavily centered in East Texas, was being routed in turn by the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist forces. I mean, and being routed, uh, there's one episode that I describe, which is not atypical, where a black man is shot through the head upon entering a store and not removing his hat. And so because of this apparent violation of contemporary etiquette, he pays with his life. And that bespeaks the worthlessness in a sense of black life at that time. And and keep in mind as well, that there's another story that needs to be told uh, with regard to what's happening in that part of the United States at that moment. Uh, Recall that Indian territory, what is now Oklahoma, was established on the northern border of Texas. Uh, That is to say, it was an attempt by the United States to tie down Texas's ambitions to challenge the United States by putting disgruntled indigenous people who had been ousted from their homeland in Georgia, speaking of the Cherokees and also speaking of the Creeks, the Choctaw, the Seminoles, all dumped into Indian territory. And many of them, particularly the Cherokees, had emulated the settlers by becoming enslavers of Africans. 
And so what happens is that many of the Cherokees in particular, they fight with the Confederacy and thereby have to pay a heavier price than most enslavers by giving up both land and also uh, giving up the land to the black population as well, which leads, to, at least for a brief moment, to a kind of enrichment of the black population. However, you may also recall what happens in 1921 with the Tulsa massacre, where one of the richest black communities in the United States in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is subjected to massacre by settlers who are envious of their wealth coming out of this, this uh, deal with the Native Americans, and they wound up losing everything and wound up being driven further into poverty. Many of them fleeing to the four corners of North America. And so it's understandable why you would ask this question of whether or not uh, many Black people might have been worse off uh, with the abolition of slavery. But all things considered, I'd have to say, despite the Tulsa massacre, despite lynchings, despite being murdered for mundane violations of social etiquette, I'd have to answer no to that question. And you also point out that Indian territory, as in quotes, reflected the dialectic of radical reform versus reaction in a manner as profound as its southern neighbor, Texas. We're talking about Oklahoma being the Indian territory. One analyst has observed that what became Oklahoma at that juncture had more bandits, horse thieves, counterfeiters, whiskey peddlers, and train robbers per square mile than any other place in the United States. It wasn't uncommon for travelers to disappear and never be heard from again at the same time Black deputy marshals in the Indian Territory had the authority to arrest whites and defend their lives in doing so. They had the authority to kill whites if the situation called for it, which was unique for the United States at the time. Nevertheless, the allies of the Negro liquidated uh, Indian Territory, then by 1907 established the state of Oklahoma, whose initial bills imposed Jim Crow. The Sooner State has been described as resembling a meat cleaver lurking above Texas, its blade dripping with the blood of the Red River, but the impact threat, uh, implicit threat of the foregoing rise of Negroes tended to dissipate after Indian Territory was largely dissolved. So why was this essentially lawless area the perfect site for the implementation of Jim Crow? Well, first of all, keep in mind that Indian Territory was one of the few territories under Washington's jurisdiction, ostensibly, that was occupied in no small measure by Confederate forces. The last Confederate military officer to surrender officially in June 1865 was Stan Wattie, W-A-T-I-E, uh, who was a Cherokee leader. And so what happens is that there was probably more dislocation in Indian territory following the end of the Civil War than any other part of the United States of America, perhaps even more so than in Texas, uh, because of this bitter contestation between A, the Confederates and the Federals, and B, the contestation between the indigenous and the settlers. So what happens as in Indian territory is that the indigenous are still, still have jurisdiction and a certain amount of sovereignty in Indian territory. You might have seen that uh, there was a recent case in the US Supreme Court that sought to circumscribe uh, Indian sovereignty. This is in 2022. 
And certainly there was even more Indian sovereignty in uh, 1872. And as a result, you saw that in these sovereign Indian lands, they were more willing, particularly, I, I must say, the non-Cherokee and the non-Choctaw, because the Cherokee and Choctaw were the major slave owners, to even have a, a Black American uh, law enforcement officers who could then enforce the law against settlers or against others. But alas, uh, this was seen as unsustainable <laughs> by many in Texas. I'm sure you're familiar with the University of Oklahoma and their mascot is the Sooners. And what that refers to, and you can go online and see a film of this. In 1889, or recreations, I should say, in 1889, Indian territory is opened up for settlement. And the Sooners were the European settlers who jumped the queue, who jumped the line and rushed to establish their grub stake before the starting gun was sounded. And then that led inevitably to Oklahoma joining the United States in 1907. And the settlers sought to reverse what they saw was this dangerous social experiment. For example, of black law enforcement officers arresting, perhaps even killing Euro-American settlers, which is one of the reasons why one of the first decrees in, in, uh, in um, the state of Oklahoma uh, was uh, decrees on mandating uh, Jim Crow. And uh, even today, as you know, uh, Oklahoma is still competing with Texas, not only on the football gridiron, but also in terms of who can be most aggressive in circumscribing women's reproductive freedom, for example, who could be most aggressive in terms of enforcing uh, anti-critical race theory demagogy, for example, who could be most aggressive in terms of loosening gun safety laws so that you can stroll into your Starbucks with an A-15 assault weapon. Uh, this is the sad state of affairs in this part of the United States. And to repeat, people should pay close and careful attention because our nightmare today in the Southwest might be your nightmare tomorrow. One last question for you, Gerald, although I could talk to you for another two or three hours about your book, because this really is an incredible book. One last question for you. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn about his newest book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. The roots of US Fascism. And one thing I just want to mention real quick is that this is the fifth consecutive year that Gerald has appeared on our show, and you can find all of our interviews with him, and you should go back and listen to every one of them at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Horn, and that's H-O-R-N-E. So you point out how uh, Roy Cullen of Houston was recognized as probably the richest man in the world. His mother had moved from South Carolina to Texas after the family's plantation was immolated. His grandfather fought in the Secession War against uh, Mexico. His competitor in this dubious race for filthy lucre, that is oil, H.L. Hunt, had a father who fought alongside the Dixie Secessionists in 1861. He was often dubbed the richest man in the world. The other members of this Texas oil troika, Clinton, 
or Clint Murchison, like the other two, had a pension for employing Negro servants, a throwback to slavery, perhaps. Virtually every radical right-wing movement in the United States during the 1950s was propped up by these Texas oilmen, including virulent anti-Semitism and the shenanigans of Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin. And jumping ahead, by 19, you write that by 1963, the phone number of Hunt's son was found in the pocket of Jack Ruby, assassin of the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy. Naturally, Hunt was briefed about the findings of the investigation into these foul crimes before Earl Warren himself, the titular head of the commission uh, and chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Hunt's putrid spewing was broadcast on 500 radio stations at its heights, at its height, which aided his, uh, his food sidelines, which tainted, was dumped in black communities. Even William F. Buckley, scion of yet another Texas oil fortune and patron saint of modern conservatism felt that Hunt gave capitalism a bad name. Not only did Murchison back McCarthy, he regarded him as a brother. Cullen was not just a conservative, but a donor to the leading Dixiecrat and ultra-conservative candidate for president in 1948, J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. And Hunt's uh, maunderings uh, were often filtered through the proliferating Christian anti-communist networks. So, is there a history, then, of Texas oil fueling U.S. fascism? Is, is opposition to fossil fuel, especially, you know, fossil fuel from Texas, opposition to U.S. fascism? I'm glad you raised that question because as we speak, an issue roiling relations between Mexico and the United States, but I detect the invisible hand of Texas in this escapade, is that Washington is challenging Mexico's state control of its oil industry, which goes back to President Cárdenas in the 1930s. Given the fact that we know that when you had the overthrow of the Mossadegh regime in Iran in 1953, that oil was at issue, we know that with regard to Venezuela, one of the issues that is a sticking point with regard to Venezuela and the United States is the fact that Venezuela has some of the largest oil reserves uh, in the world. And under the previous president, Hugo Chavez, uh, there was more state control of that industry. And we also know, and I'm glad you mentioned uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, because he bears an eerie resemblance physically and otherwise to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who in relative terms, I would say is as reactionary as a man who gave his name to an epic, I'm speaking of McCarthyism uh, embodied in Senator Joseph McCarthy. And you mentioned Senator J. Strom Thurmond of South Carolina who ran a campaign for president in 1948 on an explicit platform of racism, white supremacy, and won four or five states. He was then a dissident Democrat. He then defected to the Republican Party. He was in the vanguard in that respect because recall that in 1965, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, that in a sense is a Magna Carta for not only black voters, but voters from a language of minority backgrounds as well, such as getting ballots in Spanish or Vietnamese or 
Putonghua in the language of China, et cetera, that with that legislation, you saw a mass defection from the Democratic Party, theretofore the party uh, of the South, uh, they defected mass to Richard Nixon's Re Republican Party uh, by 1968. And so that brings us, of course, to today, where now we may be on the verge of a unique form of US fascism. We may get a glimpse of that as early as November 2022, assuming that the Republicans reclaim the House and the Senate to go along with their stranglehold over the US Supreme Court. And we all know that sooner rather than later, Agent Orange himself, Donald J. Trump, will be announcing to run for president and uh, it would be difficult, I'm afraid to say, to bet against him in November 2024. He's already pledged, and see the article recently in Axios, A-X-I-O-S, to engage in a massive purge of the civil servant workforce, what he would refer to as the deep state, not only the Justice Department and the State Department, but other federal agencies, the kind of fate that has befallen Black Americans in terms of a la Breonna Taylor in Louisville, having authorities burst <laughs> into your residence, uh, guns blazing with you lying dead in the aftermath or being executed because of a mi ma minor traffic violation in the front page of the New York Times, January, July 25th, 2022. Uh, there is an article about the so-called constitutional sheriffs who feel that the election of November 2020 was stolen they're not just from Texas, but of course they have a stronghold in Texas. Uh, they also express this idea of them being the ultimate embodied embodiment of the constitution in their county, which means that they are the law, not necessarily the Congress in Washington. And so you see this rather strange odyssey of the United States uh, devolving from states' rights which was the mantra of the 1960s when segregationist governors like George Wallace of Alabama said that the sovereign state of Alabama did not have to obey these pointed headed bureaucrats in Washington. Now you have county rights <laughs> where the sheriffs who carry guns, by the way, uh, unlike George Wallace, as far as we know, and already uh, have been visiting uh, polling booths uh, during elections, which can be very intimidating uh, to many voters. So uh, we are perhaps on the verge of a new dimension of US reality and politics. And that is one of the reasons why I urge and encourage uh, your audience to not neglect what's going on in Texas, because to repeat, our nightmare today may be your nightmare tomorrow. Gerald, I cannot thank you enough for, again, being on our show. And we look forward to your next work. What is the next book you're going to be you're working on right now? The City of Washington, D.C. That is to say, the people, as opposed to the, the high government in Capitol Hill and the White House. The title is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1918 to 1978. And when do you think that's going to be released? Next year. All right. Well, then it's going to be six straight years that you'll be coming on our show because we'll definitely have you back on the show. Contact us whenever you have any work coming out. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, Gerald. Thank you so much for showing as much support as you have had in the past for This Is Hell. I truly appreciate it. 
Thank you for inviting me. All right, take care, Joe. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. All right, listeners. It's now that time in the show where we buckle in, remain uncomfortable, and peer into episodes in the past that remind us that this has long been hell. That's right. It's time for another installment of Rotten History by Rinaldo Migaldi. And not just any ooey-gooey, grotesque, decomposing rotten history, but our second installment ever of the worst of rotten history, Rinaldo's hand-picked episodes that he believes deserve some repeated attention on the show. Three items today in our installment, all occurring on August 6th in their respective years. Our first item comes to us from August 6th, 1890, 133 years ago this week, when William Kemmler, convicted of killing his wife with a hatchet, became the first person to die in the electric chair. This new form of execution had been developed by a dentist named Alfred P. Southwick, who adapted a dental chair for the purpose and tried it out on hundreds of unfortunate stray dogs, experimenting with various voltages and placements of electrodes before arriving at a hardware configuration that he believed would kill a human efficiently. This new device was promoted as a more humane alternative to hanging, and it found favor with state governments after a recent series of bungled hangings that had made national news. On the day of his execution, Kemmler was strapped to the chair and given a 17-second burst of electricity that failed to kill him. As he lay in agony, the doctors in attendance ordered that more current be applied immediately. The problem was that Several minutes had to pass before the generator was sufficiently recharged for the second big shock that finally finished the job. The whole grisly event was witnessed by the famous electrical engineer, George Westinghouse, who later remarked that, quote, they would have done better using an axe, end quote. There's a whole history of making the brutal practice of state executions supposedly more humane and certainly with a more clinical aesthetic perpetuated by agents of the state wearing lab coats, for example, in sterile rooms glass separating the condemned from witnesses who then report the news back to the public about the whole 
clinical operation that some believe approximates justice. Our second item comes from August 6th, 1945, 78 years ago this week, when some 80,000 people were killed instantly when an American B-25 bomber dropped an atomic bomb called Little Boy on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. At the time, the city had a population of 350,000. Many thousands more people died in the following years from burns and radiation poisoning. As the result of a decision taken by U.S. President Harry Truman to use the bomb, which destroyed 90% of the city. Three days later, another American B-29 would drop an atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki. This bomb, called Fat Man, killed another 80,000 people. The overwhelming majority of the dead in both cities were civilians. Truman argued that it was the lesser of two evils, the alternative to a U.S. ground invasion that, according to American generals, could have cost the lives of four to eight hundred thousand Americans and some five to ten million Japanese. The atomic bombs were targeted less at military installations than at areas with high civilian populations. And the Japanese government was already in surrender negotiations with the United States, which some historians believe were progressing so well that the use of an atomic bomb may have only hastened Japan's surrender by a few days. Even documents from U.S. General Douglas MacArthur show that the Japanese surrender was just a matter of time. Many historians now contend that the U.S. government's intention in using the bombs was less to end the war than to punish the Japanese for their bombing of Pearl Harbor and, perhaps more importantly, to frighten the Soviet Union. That is indeed rotten history. I would add a little addendum to Ronaldo's fabulous write-up there. The figures cited about the projected loss of life through a U.S. ground invasion of the Japanese mainland. Those figures are often, have been often cited uh, for a long time in public memory, um, especially in the 20th century as veterans and their loved ones and Americans in general try to find a if not noble, at least understandable reason for introducing the world to atomic warfare and demonstrating its awful power on civilian populations deliberately. That figure of several hundred thousand uh, American projected deaths and many millions of Japanese deaths that some contend, and Truman contended in hindsight, shaped his decision to drop the bomb, provided American public memory with a just-so narrative about this. However, documentary evidence uh, proving this, specifically internal documentary evidence to the White House, is lacking or limited, and points more to a lack of consensus on the matter than any sort of... Uh, 
well-understood projection of what could happen if the U.S. invaded Japan. However, Harry Truman's probably most famous biographer, journalist David McCullough, in his biography titled Truman, which is one of the, if not the, main work people consult when trying to learn more about Harry Truman, repeats this just pat explanation of dropping the bomb. And he does so by arguing that he found this sort of scoop memo in the White House archives. However, he was very vague about what was in that memo and where to find it, and investigation by another historian named Philip Nobile in the 90s shows that this memo was likely a historical counterfeit. That is either evidence invented from whole cloth or at the very least deeply misinterpreted to say things it did not in fact say. Nor did it nor did McCullough's analysis do what most trained historians do, and that's scrutinize our sources within their context. But in the interest of not letting the facts get in the way of a good story, and I might add a, a reassuring story that Americans could tell themselves when the book was published in the 1990s, um, that we can even ennoble setting off the nuclear age in warfare. This is indeed hell. On to our third item in this installment of the Worst of Rotten History. This one also comes from August 6th, this time 1988. 35 years ago this week. In New York's Tompkins Square Park, which had become a de facto crash spot for homeless people, drug pushers, and runaway youths, several hundred people gathered to protest neighborhood gentrification, housing shortages, and a new 1 a.m. curfew in the park. New York law enforcement responded with an all-out police riot in which 38 people were seriously injured, including professional journalists and passive bystanders. More than a hundred brutality complaints were later lodged against the police, and a city review turned up many instances of their misconduct. But only two officers lost their jobs. The riot which galvanized anti-police sentiment in the neighborhood, was later commemorated by songs by, in songs by Lou Reed and the bands Bongwater and Blues Traveler. And that, listeners, is the worst of rotten history this week. Thank you, for Ronaldo, for uh, writing these when you did, and compiling them for our uh, continued edification. All right. Now that we've gotten our last dose of 
history for the day. It's now time for the next batch of your answers to this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what do you dislike most about yourself? What do you dislike most about yourself? I know it's taken a lot of bravery for our listeners so far to get around to this question. It requires soul searching and vulnerability, even some accountability in public. I know I'm not ready to answer it yet. But let's see how our listeners on Facebook are doing with it. Several responses on Facebook. I'm glad to see it. Keep them coming. Margie responds, My bank account statement. I can relate to that one. Benjamin C. responds, Sometimes, in the middle of the night, I sneak downstairs to the bathroom that our kids often use and replace the double-ply toilet paper with single-ply. That is 3D chess as far as pranking goes, Benjamin. Mark A. replies, There's no switch to turn off the voices. David Z. responds, I suck at answering question from hell. Prove me wrong, please. (laughs) You have to prove yourself wrong, David. I'm sorry. Aaron D. responds, head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. (laughs) And eyes and ears and mouth and nose and head, shoulders, knees and toes. It's a lot you don't like about your uh, various limbs and their components, plus your noggin. Morin L responds, my lack of magical powers. Amen. If you figure out how to build those, let me know. Aaron B responds, I guess I would not guess it would be not remembering how to fly when I'm awake. (laughs) Answering this week's question from hell. What do you dislike most about yourself? Dan K responds, other than myself, not much. It's a holistic answer, Dan. Adam A responds, I'm too sexy for Milan. Too sexy for Milan, New York, and Japan. (laughs) I almost got sucked into making Milan rhyme with Japan. I assume that's what you were trying to do, Adam. But I foiled your plan. Kelly H. Oh, this one's fun. Responds, The bleepin' bleepity bleep that bleepin' bleepity bleeps those bleepin' bleepity bleepity bleepy bleepers and then bleepin' bleep and bleep bleepily bleep and bleep how well my ego protects my emotions <laughs> and then finally David S replies in a non-radio friendly response that his I'm gonna use a euphemism here 
Uh, genitalia is too big. Where, where? <laughs> nice little humble brag there, David S. Can't say I relate to that one. Keep your responses coming, listeners. These were delightful, as always. There's still time to answer this week's question from hell before I reveal... My favorite of the week in tomorrow, Wednesday, August 9th's episode. The winner gets their choice of free merchandise of any merch available at our website, thisishell.com. There's some new items in stock. Be sure to check it out if that gives you a little extra incentive to answer the question from hell. You can leave your answer at any of our social media. That's currently Facebook, Twitter, and Discord, as well as on our Patreon page. Or, if you prefer older forms of communication, you can email your response to chuck at chuck at thisishell.com. That's it for me, listeners. I'm Will Ippen, filling in for Chuck Mertz until his return on... Monday, this coming Monday, August 14th. Thank you for listening. Tune in tomorrow when we conclude our deep dive into the Horn interviews. When we discuss Gerald Horn's most recent publication from international publishers titled Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. Thanks for listening. Stay beautiful and stay tuned. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>